Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Luke chapter 9 at the end of the chapter. I'm going to cover Luke chapter 9 verses 46 through 62. Now this is at the very tail end of Jesus' Galilean ministry before he goes on down to Judea to start his Judean ministry. We're going to discuss three incidents at the end of Luke here. I'm going to read you the heads that A.T. Robinson gives with these three, innocent, three incidents. First of all, he says, we're going to talk about the twelve contend as to who shall be the greatest under the Messiah's reign. His subjects must be childlike. That's in verse 46 through 48. Then in verses 49 through 50, we're going to speak about the mistaken zeal of the Apostle John, which is rebuked by Jesus in pertinent parables. And then we'll go to... Luke 9, 57 through 62, Robertson describes this this way, The Messiah's followers must give up everything for his service. All of this will, will prepare us for the next video, which takes up Luke 10, and goes, which will cover Luke 10, one, verses 1 through 24, the mission of the 70, Christ's joy in their work on their return. Now, in order to discuss the first subject that where the twelve contend as to who shall be the greatest under the Messiah's reign, and his subjects must be childlike, Luke 9, 46-48. I'm going to splice in a discussion of Mark 9, 33-37, which parallels our passage in Luke exactly. That splice begins now. Moving on with Mark, chapter 9, verse 33. Mark says this, Then they came to Capernaum. So they've come all the way down from Caesarea Philippi, which is a good ways north of the Sea of Galilee, straight up the Jordan Valley there. They came back to Capernaum on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. When he, Jesus, was in the house, and that's the house of Simon and Andrew, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? Now, Jesus, of course, knew what they were arguing about, but he asked the question to give opportunity to reprove them for their pride. Because what were they arguing about? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? We have a minor reconciliation problem here. Matthew 18:1, which is in the parallel passage in Matthew 18, that verse says this, In that hour came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who then is the greatest? In Mark 9, it says, Jesus asked them, What were you arguing about? So the disciples raised the question in Matthew. Jesus raised the question in Mark. Here are some options on how you can reconcile that. One of the, or two of them first referred the matter to Jesus on the way to Capernaum, and then Jesus didn't answer until they got to Capernaum, and then he brought it up again. Here's another way to reconcile it. Upon arrival at Capernaum, Jesus asked the, the disciples first. He talks first. Who's the greatest? The disciples were too ashamed to answer. But upon reflecting what Jesus knew what they were talking about, they then took courage and asked Jesus who was the greatest. In other words, they repeated the question that Jesus had asked them. So that's not too hard to reconcile. Moving on to verse 34 in Mark 9. But they were silent. The disciples were silent because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Parallel passage in 18.1, the question was that they asked Jesus who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So they're talking about the kingdom, the messianic kingdom. That's what they're interested in. Now this topic of who was greatest in the kingdom of heaven came up more than once with the disciples, once in Luke 22, verse 24, then a dispute also arose, them, arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. This is at a different time. This is in, and then in Mark 10, verses 35 through 
37. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do something for us if we ask you. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered him, Allow us to sit at your right and your left in your glory. So those are other situations where these people are worried about their spot in the temporal kingdom that they expected. All the while Jesus is getting ready to be crucified, the disciples are getting ready to rule in power and glory. Now when it says a dispute among them arose as they traveled back to Capernaum, obviously that Jesus had left them alone, otherwise they wouldn't be able to have that dispute. So Jesus told them the painful news of his impending death, and then he let them travel by themselves. Why? Jameson Fawcett and Brown gives two possible reasons. One, to give himself privacy to contemplate what was about to happen. Two, to give the disciples time to discuss and prepare themselves for the crucifixion, which, of course, did not happen. They were too busy talking about he was going to be the big shot. Mark 9:35, sitting down, Jesus sitting down. He called the twelve and said to him, sitting is how rabbis taught, by the way. It was a usual position for Jewish rabbis to teach. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. And so now Jesus gives the famous comparison of a child, someone that wants to be a leader in the kingdom of God must be like a child, which of course is not the way the disciples were thinking. Mark 9, 36 through 37, he continues, Then he took a child and had him stand among them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. So you want to make God happy, make Jesus happy. You want to make Jesus happy, take care of the little children and get down on their level. Don't forget them. How many times have they forgotten in church? Oh, let's go park them in the nursery. Get them out of the way so we can listen to that great, exciting sermon. Even though sermons didn't exist in the New Testament church, we're going to listen to that, and we're going to shuffle the kids off into the nursery. No, 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 no. That's not the way it's supposed to be. The bit about Jesus taking the child in his arms, that's a detail that Mark adds is not mentioned in the other parallel passage. In Luke 9, verse 47, it says, Jesus, knowing the thoughts of their hearts, how did he know? Well, maybe he heard it, heard them talking on the way, or maybe he just could <laughs> look. He knew them well enough to know. I don't think this is supernatural. I think that their attitude was pretty obvious. Matthew 18, 2-5 says this, Then he called a child to him and had him stand among them. I assure you, he said, unless you are converted and become like children, converted means you have to change. There he explicitly tells the disciples, You need to change, guys. Unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. The application points of that is pretty obvious. And think about all these hotshot pastor popes think that they're God's gift to the world and they're going to tell all the little babies in their congregation how to do this, how to believe this, and how to do that. And how dare you tell me I'm wrong and don't you ever criticize me and don't you ever suggest that my teaching is wrong. There's too many people like that. If they would just listen to what Jesus said about children and behave like a child, you're not going to act arrogant anymore. Now, when Jesus compares someone great in the kingdom to a child, he's referring to the positive aspects of children. They're trusting, they're unpretentious, they're humble, they're free from ambition. He's not contemplating the bad sides of children, such as their rebellion and immaturity. Of course, it's an analogy. All right, I'm going to finish up this audio by going back and picking up a verse in Mark 9 that I skipped. Verse 35, 
Mark and Matthew and Luke all talked about the little child that was brought in the midst as an object lesson to prove and to show that humility is important. Mark adds another object lesson about humility in verse 35. Sitting down, which is what Jewish rabbis do when they're getting ready to teach, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Well, first of all, why did he call the twelve? Well, probably the people who were disputing about who was going to be great, Peter, James, and John, perhaps, they were going to be specially rebuked because they were the ones that were arguing. It doesn't really say that they were, but we can assume they, they those three were the leaders. They were probably thinking about who's going to be the greatest because they were the ones that were always with Jesus in the critical times of his ministry. They were obviously the closest ones to Jesus. But Jesus at this point calls all 12 of the disciples, all 12 of the apostles to himself and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So he uses this as an occasion to teach them all about humility. And John Gill speculates that the other nine were guilty of the same kind of thinking as Peter, James, and John, which I wouldn't be surprised they were. Now, the Holman Christian Bible translates slave as servant. It can be translated both ways, servant and slave, because slaves obviously were servants. Not all servants were slaves, but all slaves were servants. I like the stronger translation to be slave of all. The King James has minister of all, which doesn't really grab you too much. So that's the way to power in the kingdom of God. You notice that the principles are reversed. The way to power in worldly kingdoms, in business or in government, is to stomp on everybody, step on their head as they try to push their way up, kick them off the ladder, and laugh as they fall off. But no, if we serve other people, you know, even in business, I used to teach business in college, Management from the heart. I saw a video one time, management from the heart. And basically it said, serve your employees, help them. If they have a problem, show them how they can fix it. Give them the resources they need to fix it. And guess what? You will be a successful manager. People automatically gravitate to that sort of person. People love that kind of manager. Unfortunately, there are few of those types, especially in the People's Republic of China, in which the workers generally are treated like slaves. I don't know how else to put it, but I've got too many examples of that, too many people I know who are being abused right now as I speak, being abused by idiotic managers who all they think about is making a buck and and driving their workers to distraction, making them work 12 hours a day, 7 days a week, and if you don't do that, we're going to fire you, that kind of nonsense. Don't do that. Be a servant to people. Don't put religious guilt on people. Help them get free of their sins. Help them. When they don't have enough food to eat, just help them. Be a slave to them. Think about other people all the time, and that is the secret to a happy Christian life. All right, I have now returned from my splice of Mark 9, 33-37, covering Luke chapter 9, verse 46-48. through 48. Now we are going to discuss Luke 9, 49-50, the mistaken zeal of the Apostle John rebuked by Jesus in pertinent parables which took place in Capernaum. To handle that, I'm going to go to my discussion of Mark 9, verses 38-50. through 50. That splice begins now. I'm in Mark chapter 9. We're going to finish the chapter going from verse 38 to verse 50. We are at Peter's house in Capernaum. Jesus and the disciples having just descended the Mount of Transfiguration and come back. And on the way, they had this discussion, the disciples did, who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus, in, in the first part of Mark chapter 9, has just finished telling them, look, you've got to be like a 
servant, like a slave. You've got to be like a child if you're going to be first in the kingdom of heaven. And he picked up a little kid and put the little child in his arms as an object lesson. And that's important as we try to understand the context of the last 13 verses of Mark chapter 9. And the context is difficult because it seems, excuse me, the, not the context, but uh, trying to piece together the pieces of the context is difficult because it doesn't seem like they fit together too well. So I'm going to try to do that. So we start in Mark 9, verse 38. John said to him, this is John, the son of Zebedee, one of the apostles, said to him, Jesus, teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Now what John is doing is, is what John is doing is exhibiting the same behavior that he and Peter and James and probably the rest of the disciples were exhibiting when they came down from the Mount of Transfiguration trying to figure out who was going to be the big shot in the kingdom of heaven, in the messianic kingdom that they thought was coming. The political kingdom, the, the kingdom with military and political glory, worldly glory. He's still exhibiting that same attitude because now John sees somebody else who's not one of the 12 doing the same things that they were doing, casting out demons in Jesus' name, although it must be pointed out that nine of the disciples had failed to cast out that epileptic demon right after they came down off the Mount of Transfiguration. But in general, they're going out doing the same things that they were doing, and they were jealous of it. And in fact, they tried to stop him. But why? Because he wasn't following us. He wasn't in our ministry. He's in somebody else's ministry, and by golly, we're not going to have anybody get in the way of our megachurch ministry. Well, John is still showing selfishness, the desire for control and power. Now, who was this someone that was out there casting out demons in an unauthorized manner, in a manner not sanctioned by the apostles? He could have been a disciple of John the Baptist, so say John, suggest John Gill and Adam Clark. He could have been one of the 70 who had been sent out by Christ, but who didn't come back with the original group. This is Adam Clark's view. Or it's just somebody who wasn't operating out of contempt, but ignorance. He'd heard that Jesus could cast out demons, and he saw it being done in Jesus' name, so he just used Jesus' name and cast, cast, cast demons out. That wasn't the first time. That, that wasn't the only time that was done. You recall in the book of Acts, people were doing that in Jesus' name. And I think, if I recall correctly, they were people who didn't even believe in Jesus. Now, there's an interesting story in the book of Numbers that exhibits the same spirit. Numbers 11, verse 26 through 30. This is the story of Eldad and Medad. Numbers 11, verse 26. Two men had remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other Medad. The spirit rested on them. They were among those listed, but had not gone out to the tent. And they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and reported to Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, assistant to Moses since his youth, responded, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses asked him, asked Joshua, Are you jealous on my account? If only all the Lord's people were prophets, and the Lord would place his spirit on them. So even Joshua had this problem of unauthorized spiritual activity. And I'll tell you what, this is a this is such a human common human failing. You see it all the time in the churches of Christ. People getting jealous of somebody else, and usually it ha it's because they're, they believe something a little bit different, and so that's enough to disqualify them. I'll tell you right now, I disagree with about 95 to 96, maybe 97% of what John MacArthur teaches, but by golly, he's out there preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and I'm not going to say anything 
bad about that. I might say something bad about a bunch of his other stuff, but not about that. He's on, he's on my side. He's against the devil, and he's for Jesus. And that's the attitude we ought to take toward everybody who's out there preaching the name of God. I mean, I was driving to the beach one time. I looked at this little church in the, in the tobacco land of South Carolina. Out in the countryside, it was a shack. It had a little hand-painted sign, something about the fire-baptized Church of Jesus Christ. I don't know. It had one of these funny names. You know, it might have been a black church. I'm not sure. They got names about 50 words long. And I looked at it and I thought, the gospel has penetrated even into here. The gospel penetrates everywhere. We ought to be thank God for everybody that's preaching the gospel, even in the highest levels of the government. You got these nasty politicians going to Bible studies. Even in the Catholic Church, you'll find lots of people who really believe in Jesus, despite all the bad doctrine. We need to be thankful for that. Mark 9, verses 39 through 41. Before I go on, let me point out there are parallels to this to these to this passage in Mark in Matthew eighteen, six through fourteen, and Luke nine, forty nine through fifty. Only two verses in Luke, they don't add anything, so we're gonna leave that out. And Mark Matthew eighteen has one little section that adds to the story, maybe two two little pieces that add to the story which I'll mention when I finish with Mark. Most of it's in Mark here. So we go to Mark 9, verse 39 through 41. Don't stop him, said Jesus, because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. And of course, Jesus is speaking of the man casting out demons. He says miracle. No one who will perform a miracle. If you cast out demons, the same thing as performing a miracle. He's doing a work in Jesus' name. And if he does something in Jesus' name, well, you know, that means he must care about Jesus. Someone he's not going to speak evil of him. Verse 40. For whoever is not against us is for us. This man obviously is not against Jesus. He's casting out demons in Jesus' name. 41, and whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of my name, since you belong to the Messiah, I assure you he will never lose his reward. Jesus is basically saying here, look, by that man casting out a demon, he's giving you a cup of water to drink. He's helping you out. He's refreshing you because casting out demons is your job too. The idea is for the disciples to help one another, not to compete with one another. There's a similar scripture in different occasion, not a parallel, in Matthew 10, verse 42. And whoever gives just a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is a disciple, I assure you, he will never lose his reward. So the idea here is do good things for your fellow believers. Do good things for your fellow believers. Not just your family, not just yourself, although that's fine to do. Of course, it's good to do things for your family, good things for yourself. But also, do good things for your fellow believers. And guess what? You're not going to lose a reward. You're going to get a reward for helping out your fellow believers. There's nothing more satisfying than to help out fellow believers. You should get up in the morning and think, now how can I help this? Can I pray for them? Can I teach them some of the words of Jesus? Can I give them some encouragement as they stumble through the vicissitudes of life? Whatever it might be. We go to Mark 9, verse 42. But whoever causes the downfall of one of these little ones who believe in me, and remember, Jesus has got a little kid in his arms now. That's from the previous portion of Mark, chapter 9. Jesus has this little one in his, in his arms. Whoever causes the downfall of one of these little ones who believe in me, and he's using that child as an object lesson to stand for his disciples, the people who follow Jesus. It would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And I think what Jesus is saying here is, look, you are hurting my people when you attack my ministers who aren't in your little group. Now, we're going to have to do a little bit of uh, interpretation here. 
one of these little ones, who is it that he's referring to? He's referring to little children in age. Whoever caused the downfall of a little kid who believes in Jesus, Gil rejects that, and I do too. I don't think that's what he's doing to, what he's mainly referring to. Remember, these little children are an object lesson. I want you, ministers of the gospel, to act like little children, to be humble. So, so what he's really referring to is the object of the symbolism of the little child, namely the disciples. So another option for who the little one could refer to is baby Christians. In other words, when Christian leaders get into a pissing contest, their spiritual children are hurt. It's better to be drowned in the sea with a millstone around the leader's neck before you hurt one of his children. Another option is the little one who believe in Jesus could be the man who was out there casting out the demon, but who wasn't one of the 12 apostles. It could have been that also. I think this is a tough question in my humble opinion. The little ones refers to baby Christians or disciples, people who believe in Jesus, and the way that they could be have their downfall caused is by their leaders fighting with one another. Maybe it's just because I've seen too much of that. I don't know, but I believe that's what Jesus was talking about, although I do say it is a, it's somewhat of a close question. could refer to the man who believed in Jesus by casting demons out, and now here you are trying to stomp on him, leave him alone. That's a good option, too. I'm not sure between those two which it is. Now, this idea of a millstone hung around his neck, there were two kinds of millstone. There was a small millstone, small enough to be turned by a female slave. Then there was a bigger millstone that was turned by a donkey or an ox or something. Some And that was so heavy that a female slave couldn't turn it, and it would be really heavy so that if it was thrown around your neck, put around your neck, and you were thrown into the sea, you'd drop like a rock, like they say. Some manuscripts say it would be better for him if a heavy millstone turned by a donkey. That The phrase turned by a donkey is added to there, although not all manuscripts do that. Anyway, the idea is clear. It's going to be bad for you. You caused one of Jesus' little ones to stumble. So don't go around criticizing his little ones who are preaching the gospel outside of your little group. That could be it. Or don't get into a fight with other leaders and thus cause damage to the little ones under your care when they see the jealousy of their leaders fighting with one another. Mark 9, verse 43 through 44. And if your hand causes your downfall, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now what he's saying here is don't cause people to stumble, and that means don't get into fights with other leaders who are doing the gospel in a way that you don't like the way they're doing it. Don't do that. That will cause your downfall. Now, Jesus is going to use a, a hyperbole here, and I'm going to show you you cannot take it literally. And, well, let's just do that first. If your hand causes your downfall, cut it off. Okay, so now you've got one hand. It is better for you to enter life maimed. That means eternal life. It is better for you to go into eternal life with one hand than to have two hands and go to hell. Now, it is impossible for you to enter into the afterlife in the resurrection life with one hand because you're going to be perfectly restored. You're going to have a resurrected body. You're not going to have one hand. And Jesus is going to continue with this hyperbole and have your hand cut off, your foot cut off, and your right eye cut off. You're going to enter into eternal life without a hand, without a foot, without an eye? Of course not because this was not meant to be taken literally. All you literalists out there, all you dispensationalists who talk about literal, literal, literal all the time, can't be literal here. 
Now it talks about the un, uh, it's better it would be better to go to hell here than to cause somebody to stumble. Basically, is what it's saying. We have a manuscript problem, so let's talk about that first. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Well, first of all, that's in brackets in the Home of Christian Study Bible because not all manuscript all the ancient manuscripts have it. And there's another place too, which in next verse 45, the unquenchable fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's also questionable and in brackets in the Holman Christian Study Bible. However, in verse 48, it also says where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And that is not in brackets. In other words, there's no manuscript problem there. It's everywhere. Probably the scribes got carried away and copied it in two different places where they shouldn't have is my guess. I don't know, but the point is that is in the scripture where the worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Now, what does that say about people who deny the reality of hell? Either it's punishment or your consciousness in it or it's eternality. It doesn't say a lot, I'll tell you that. Now, you could say that Jesus is just using hyperbole, just like I said, because it's impossible to go into life main. Well, therefore, it's impossible to go into hell. But there's too many other places in hell, in the scriptures that talk about going to hell, a literal hell. So we're not going to fly with that argument. We're not going to go anywhere with that argument. Where does this come from? Well, first of all, this is this whole idea about your right eye, your right foot, and your right hand being cut off if, if it causes, if there's something that, and, and, and that's compared to something that causes you to stumble, it's better to lose those limbs and make it into heaven. That's in the Sermon on the Mount, too, Matthew 5, 29 through 30. Jesus says exactly the same thing. So it's a, it was, that just illustrates that a lot of times Jesus' teachings show up in two different places, and it's to distinguish them, you have to know place and time. That's why it's good to get a harmony and go through it and figure out when did Jesus say it and to who he said it to and when he said it. The reference that Jesus makes about the worm not dying and the fire not quenched, being quenched in hell comes from Isaiah 66, verse 24. Quote, As they leave, they will see the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm will never die, their fire will never go out, and they will be a horror to all mankind. <laughs> the worm never dying means the worm's on a dead body. When they start eating up the corpse, they just keep right on eating. And the fire never going out is obvious. Here's a quote from Gill in, in his inimitable style. Quote, as a worm that is continually gnawing upon the entrails of a man gives him exquisite pain, so the consciences, consciences of sinners will be continually flying in their faces, bringing their sins to remembrance, accusing them of them, upbraiding them with them, aggravating them, tormenting them for them, filling them with dreadful anguish and misery, with twinging remorses and severe reflections, and which will never have an end. This will always be the case. Conscience will ever, will be ever distressing, racking, and torturing them. It will never cease. Now let me say that these metaphors about fire and hell, this not this doesn't necessarily mean that hell's going to be fire, because in other places eternal darkness and fire and darkness don't go together. I love to watch near-death experiences especially the Christian ones, the ones that people go to hell and they get and they see how bad it is and want to go, and then they call to heaven and God delivers them out of hell. You can not believe in that if you want. I suggest you look at all the, at the testimony and see whether that testimony is credible. I believe it is. But, I, but the thing about the people who testify about hell, it is perfectly hellish, awful. 
terrible. Why would anybody want to risk going there? Well, because today the American church is scared to death even mention the word hell. And as a result, nobody's scared of it. And as a result, the majority of people in American culture today think that you're automatically going to go to heaven without having to repent, without having to believe in Jesus, without having your sins atoned for. That's the pitiful shape that the church in America has gotten itself into. And people are going to hell because of that, speaking from human terms. Let's go to Mark 9, verses 45 through 48. And if your foot causes your downfall, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. In brackets here, the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Verse 47, and if your eye causes your downfall, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So that's two heavy parables there. Millstone around your neck, bottom of the sea, or be thrown into hell with eternal worm turning in your gut and fire burning you up forever. Jesus took it very seriously. Don't call, don't do anything that will harm his little children. Don't do anything. There's some other verses that refer to hell in eternal terms. Matthew 3:12, not parallel passage here. His winnowing shovel is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn up with fire that never goes out. That's a difficult verse for those who say hell is not eternal. Now we go to Mark 9, 49, and we have a very short verse, but a very difficult verse. It says this, For everyone will be salted with fire. Now the question here is, who is the everyone Jesus is referring to? Is he referring to everyone who is in hell? which means the context would be the previous verses where he talked about people who cause his little ones to stumble to be thrown into hell. They, will they be salted with fire, or is it everyone who believes? Then the context would be the next verse, verse 50, where Jesus is clearly talking to his disciples because he said, have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. He's talking about his disciples there. Which way does it go? I think you're going to see it's a close question. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown said this is a difficult verse on which much has been written. I'm going to give you three options. Option one, unbelievers preserved in hell, just like salt preserves meat. Unbelievers are going to be preserved in hell, but not with salt, but with fire. And they're going to be down there being burnt forever. That's option number one, unbelievers preserved in hell. Option number two, unbelievers destroyed in hell. Just like fire destroys, unbelievers are going to be destroyed in hell by fire. Option three. Believers, believers, not non-believers now, but believers who are preserved, not destroyed, but preserved through their trials. And the, the interesting thing is option number one, unbelievers who are preserved in hell the way salt preserves. That's taken up by John Gill. He believes that. Option number two, unbelievers destroyed in hell. The NIV Study Bible takes that position. I said Gill believes that. He mentions that. I'm not sure if he takes a position. Option number one, unbelievers preserved in hell. John Gill suggests that. That's actually the majority view, actually. Adam Clark believes it, too. Option number two, unbelievers destroyed in hell. Gill mentions that, but the NIV Study Bible takes that position. Option number three, believers who are preserved through their trials, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, affirm that position. So you see there's a split of opinion everywhere. So let's look at it a little closer. Here's a quote from John Gill supporting option number one, that everyone who is in hell will be preserved forever and ever with fire in hell, just like salt preserves meat. Here's his quote. What salt is to flesh, as that keeps flesh from putrefaction and corruption, 
So the fire of hell, as it will burn, torture, and distress rebellious sinners, it will preserve them in their beings. They shall not be consumed by it, but continued in it, so that these words are a reason of the former, showing and proving that the soul in torment shall never die or lose any of its powers and faculties, and particularly not its gnawing, torturing conscience, and that the fire of hell is inextinguishable, for those sinners will be inexpressible, tormented in it, they will not be consumed by it, but the smoke of their torments shall ascend forever and ever, and that they will be so far from being annihilated by the fire of hell that they shall be preserved in their beings in it, as flesh is preserved by salt. Well, that's sort of a prolix way of saying it, kind of a roundabout, long-winded way of saying it, but you get the idea. Salt preserves meat. All believers are going to be preserved in hell, and their, and their torment will last forever. Such language we will not hear in the modern American church. Adam Clark says this, quote, It is generally supposed, notice this is the common opinion now, at least back in the 1800s, It is generally supposed that our Lord means that as salt preserves the flesh with which it is connected from corruption, so this everlasting fire, this inconsumable fire, will have the property not only of assimilating all things cast into it to its own nature, but of making them inconsumable like itself. Here's another quote from Adam Clark. If this, be, if this passage be taken according to the common meaning, it is awful indeed. Here may be seen the greatness, multiplicity, and eternity of the pains of the damned. They suffer without being able to die. They are burned without being consumed. They are sacrificed without being sacrificed, are salted with the fire of hell as eternal victims of the divine justice. And that, my friends, was written by an Arminian. And you know, Arminians like to soften the idea of judgment a lot. They think Calvinists are a little too austere. But that's, that's why, that was by an Arminian. Those were the days, my friend. These people weren't wussy puss American preachers who scared to death. They're going to run off a parishioner who's putting money in the collection plate if he mentions hell. Option number two. Option number two is this verse refers to unbelievers who are destroyed in hell. Not preserved, but destroyed in hell. Still unbelievers, they're in hell, but they're destroyed, not preserved. If we read Leviticus 2.13, we read this. You are to season each of your grain offerings with salt. You must not omit from your grain offering the salt of the covenant with your God. You are to present salt with each of your offerings. So the idea is when you do a grain offering, not a meat offering, but a grain offering, you put salt on it and it gets burnt up on the altar. And so you have salt connected with destruction by fire, salted by fire. So sinners in hell are like sacrificial offerings being burnt up. It's interesting, even as Gill points out, even heathens, they also had this idea that sacrifices were no good without salt. So the idea is that unbelievers are going to be sacrificed in hell on the, in the fires of hell. That's a reasonable presumption. That would fit in with, of course, the... The previous context of why you're going to be cast into hell if you cause one of my little ones to stumble. Let's go to the third option. There, everyone who will be salted with fire refers to believers, not unbelievers, but believers who are preserved through trials. The fire then means the fiery trials which season the believer. Now you got a problem with the context here because Jesus has been talking about hell and all of a sudden we switch to trials. And Jesus has been talking about people damned to hell, and also now he's talking about the disciples, the saved people. Well, the answer to that, if you take this option, is is true. The verse doesn't fit with the previous context, but the previous context 
could then cause Jesus to pivot to verse 50, where he's clearly talking about his disciples, and he's talking about salt in verse 50. Salt is good, he says. How can you make it salty? Salt among yourselves. Be at peace among you. Have salt among yourselves, and be at peace with one another. So that chance... So in other words, the context does fit if you look at the next verse. NIV study Bible takes this position and says that every Christian in this life will undergo the fire of suffering and purification. And to fit and to make a, a, a further argument for option C, that this is referring to believers who are being preserved through trials, is that Jesus at the end of verse 50 says, be at peace with one another. Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another, which fits with the idea don't go around criticizing Somebody that's not in your apostolic band who's casting out demons in my name. Don't fight with fellow workers. So it does fit the context. So that's a, that's a good, that's a perfectly reasonable option that um, that when Jesus says everyone will be salted with fire, he's talking about believers. His disciples will be salted by fire as they go through their trials. They need to be at peace with one another. But the other interpretations make sense too. Either unbelievers being preserved in hell or destroyed in hell. I think strong arguments can be made for those also. So I'm not going to take a position on that to each his own. Mark 9, verse 50. Jesus continues, Salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you make it salty? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. I think what he's talking about here is salt preserves. They use salt to preserve meat. Salt should lose its flavor. How can you make it salty? In other words, if it quits preserving meat, uh, that's it. You you can't make it salty again. You can't give it give it its power to preserve meat again. And you got to throw it out. The implication is it's worthless. Don't be worthless, disciples. Have salt among yourselves. In other words, be salt to one another. Preserve one another. Care for one another. And then he literally says, be at peace with one another. There is nothing worse than getting into fights with fellow Christians. I've been there. Hell, it's hell on earth. And sometimes, you know, I hate to say it, but sometimes it's necessary because sometimes fellow Christians can do things that if they were in your church, it would involve church discipline, and that's not pleasant. And sometimes, you know, you, you know, I'm not advocating a position of pacifism here. Sometimes you have to protect people. But I'm telling you, if there's no need to protect anybody, stay out of it. I remember one time somebody called me to come down to a church three states from my, a long way away. They were having a big uproar, and I knew some of the people involved in it. And they were people who were kind of big in the in the circles I was moving in at the time. And I wrote him back, and I said, uh, well, you know, I wasn't asked to come down here. I don't know anything of the controversies going on, and I don't choose to get involved in somebody else's business. That's the church's job to straighten that out. And for my statesman-like position, brother wrote me back and told me I was a coward. <laughs> so, you know, you can't win. But I, my attitude is I'm going to stay at peace with everybody that I can stay at peace with. Now, if it involves somebody that's destroying my friend, you know, I've, I, we had a guy one time that was destroying churches. He was busting up friendships, churches. He was an absolute disaster and a menace to the human race. And we had introduced this brother into our circles. And so I was responsible. I was partly responsible. And so we finally had to do something about that. And we did. And we shut him up. At great, great cost. So when Jesus says be at peace with, and we're at peace now because we shut him up. So when Jesus is saying be at peace with one another, there's another verse. What does Paul say? As far as it is possible, be at peace with one another. That's Paul the apostle said that. So you got that. You got to. You 
you don't get into fights unnecessarily, but sometimes you got to fight. you got to know when to hold them, and you got to know when to fold them. And just to remind us of the context here, when Jesus says, be at peace with one another, he's referring to the disciples who started this whole conversation off by, by arguing about who was going to be sit at his right hand, who was going to sit at his left hand, who was going to be the big shot in the kingdom of God. He says, don't fight over position. Don't fight over who's number one and who's number two. This apparently is one of the sins of the human race because it sure shows up a lot, not just in churches but in businesses and governments. Paul told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5.13 to regard certain workers very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Be at peace as far as it is possible. Now let me go to the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 18, verses 6 through 14. We'll pick up a few minor points. We read in Matthew 18:7, Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Now this is right in the middle, if you recall, where Jesus is saying that it'd be better for a millstone thrown around your neck and you drop, dropped to the bottom of the sea than if you should cause one of these little ones of Jesus, his disciples, to stumble. So he's talking about causing disciples to stumble. This is, this is in the middle of that, and Matthew brings this up. Mark doesn't mention it. Woe to the world because of offenses. Well, offenses must come. Well, what are offenses? The NIV says that offenses are things that cause people, the NIV study Bible, things that cause people to sin. John Gill says it's temptations to sin. And these things cause woe to the world. Yes, they do. And it says, for offenses must come. Why? Because we live in a sinful world. As long as we live in a sinful world, offenses must come. There are always going to be temptations to sin. There's always going to be things that cause people to sin. There's always going to be things that cause Jesus' little ones to stumble. However, that's no excuse for us because Jesus then says, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Personal responsibility, folks. Here's a good example of here. You have determinism. Yep, we're going to have sin as long as we're in a sinful world. It's going to happen. But we also have individual responsibility in the context of that determinism because you are free to cause that offense to come or to not cause it to come. Now, how does this fit in with the context? Remember, the disciples were criticizing that man who was ministering outside of the twelve. Well, the disciples caused offense by attacking that man doing the exorcism. I believe that's the context. He, he, He attacked them and he was causing offense to both to that man and also to the people who were watching the attack. All right, one little minor point here. Also, that woe to the world, Adam Clark says it can also be translated alas. Alas to the world. Clark says that shows a feeling of sympathy and concern to the world, less a feeling of judgment on the world. Well, I think Clark's Arminianism got the best of him here. Arminians always, always kind of downplaying that judgment idea. I just gave you a quote of Adam Clark where he gave a graphic description of hell, so Clark was a good Arminian. No, he doesn't deny the pains of hell for people who don't repent but you can see it time and time again whenever it comes to a verse that makes it sound like god is judging people oh no can't have that we gotta we gotta soften it a little bit i think that when jesus says woe to the world he means woe to the world we're going to be judged because of the sins of the world if we are contributing to the sins of the world we are going to participate in judgment that the world's going to receive of course, our judgment is not eternal because we don't go to hell. But still, if we do things that are sinful, we will be punished. There will be woe for us. We don't want to sin because sin has bad results. The wages of sin is death. I don't want to slowly die by committing sins. I want to 
try to be conformed to my new nature, which is the nature of Jesus Christ, the new man which was born again by the Holy Spirit. All right, now we got one more, one more, one more comment to make about the parallel in Matthew. We're not going to talk about these extra things that Matthew puts into the discussion here. He mentions in verse 10, chapter 18, See that you despise not one of these little ones, for saying to you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father. There's the guardian angel verse. I talked about that in my audio on Matthew 18. You can check that out. I'm not going to go over it again here because this is only in Matthew. And then we hear the story about a man has a hundred sheep, one goes astray, and one is found that the people rejoice in heaven more over the one that was lost than the 99 that were already found. All right, I've returned from the splice of Mark 9, verses 38 through 50, covering Luke 9, 49 through 50. This is when the disciples got jealous of somebody else casting out devils in Jesus' name, and the parallels in Matthew and Mark go into much greater detail than Luke does, so I've given you the whole background using the parallel passages. Now we will turn to the last topic this audio will cover, which is... The Messiah's followers must give up everything for his service. This is in Luke 9, 57 through 62. That'll finish up Luke chapter 9. I'm going to splice in my discussion of that. There's only one parallel passage in Matthew 8, verses 19 through 22. And the splice of that audio begins here. All right, so Jesus is already proclaiming himself the Messiah to this man who said, I'll follow you wherever you go. Now, getting back to the verse here. This was a scribe that did this. It was the Pharisees, probably a Pharisee. These people generally not very sympathetic to Jesus. And and Jesus is trying to get rid of this idea of easy discipleship. Yeah, you say you want to follow me, but I, I might be the son of God, the son of man. I might be the Messiah, but I don't even have a place to sleep. He didn't bother to mention this guy who's going to be executed, killed on the cross. So what he's saying is, you say you want to follow me, you better be ready to follow. And I just had an experience with somebody who said they were a Christian. I led them to the Lord in four or five months of trying to get her to follow the Lord, and she didn't do this, and she wouldn't do that, and she finally says, I'm finished, I'm out, okay, yeah, it's real easy to say you're going to follow Jesus, but if you think God is some kind of old grandfather sitting up on a couch in the sky throwing lollipops down to his doting grandchildren, that's not what Christianity is, that's not what following Jesus is, there is a cost of discipleship, and Jesus was trying to point this out to this guy, you're, if you want to follow me, you're not going to have anywhere to sleep, this man came and said the man wanted to follow him. Now, what was the scribe's motive in trying to follow Jesus? From, from Jesus' answer, we can see that the man had the wrong idea. Jesus kind of gave him a strong statement in reply. The scribe's mo Here's some possibilities as to what the scribe was thinking about. He could have seen the miracles, and he could have been thinking that Jesus would be received as, as the Messiah. And so since Jesus would be the military ruler, the kingly ruler, if he joined himself to Jesus, he could get much ease, honor, and wealth. And that's what people thought back then about the Messiah. So this man was probably not really interested in Jesus' spiritual riches that he had to offer. He, could, he might want to discuss the law with this famous rabbi Jesus who had just given the Sermon on the Mount. He might, want, he might have wanted to say, well, let's talk theology. Jameson Fawcett and Brown said he was swelled with temporary but not permanent enthusiasm. So it's interesting. The other disciples were called. Jesus went and got them and said, follow me. And they followed this man wasn't called, but he rashly volunteered, and most probably for the wrong motives. Now, when Jesus said he had no place to lay his head, this emphasized his lowliness. And note the irony here. The Messiah, the Son of God, doesn't have anywhere to sleep. This indicates to us Jesus' true humanity, Gil said. He was not only God, he was human too. All right, let's go to chapter 8, verses 21 through 22 in Matthew. 
Lord, another of his disciples said, First let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now again, this is a guy that was probably like the other guy who said he'd follow Jesus wherever he went. This is probably one of these disciples who was interested in the goodies he was going to get in the Messianic kingdom. And so when Jesus said, Okay, let's go over here. We're going to go into that wilderness of the Gadarenes. Let's, let's, let's. Head her out, and this guy said, well, no, you don't know, I know, I've got some things, like family things i got to take care of. Let me go and bury my father. Now, burying your father was a very, very, very strong requirement in that society, and so it sounded so pious. Let me go bury my father, and Jesus didn't give him a pious answer. He said, no, nah, let the dead bury their own dead. And what he means is let the spiritually dead bury their own physical dead. Now, this verse has always seemed harsh to me. You know, the Jews place great importance on the duty of children to bury parents. And also, how about the commandments? Honor the father and mother that it may be well with you, that you may live long in the land. And here Jesus is saying, let somebody else bury your old father. Well, let's look at some context here to make this command not seem so harsh. I was doing a Bible study with a Chinese person. And, oh, you know how the Chinese love their ancestors and love their parents and honor their parents and will do anything for their parents. And, and they, it, she was just having a hard time with this one. I had, and I'm not Chinese, so I remember when I was young, I had trouble with it too. All right, well, some context here might help to see this in a better light. First of all, the time of Jesus' ministry was short. He didn't, he didn't have but three years, and that demands full commitment. You ain't got time to mess around. You're going to follow Jesus, you had to follow Jesus. Plus, the father was probably not dead already. If the father was dead already, the man wouldn't be out there in the, in the wilderness chasing Jesus around, listening to Jesus' teaching, and watching the miracles. He would have been home burying his father. So the father was probably still alive. This is according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. And what the disciple was asking was, let me go home and wait for him to die. I'll bury him. Then I'll follow you. Well, now, Jesus probably discerned that. He was talking about a long delay, and he didn't really want to be a proper disciple. The custom back then was to bury the dead on the day of death, lack of embalming and so forth. He had to do it quickly. And so this guy would have been homeless if father had died. He wouldn't be out following Jesus. Uh, John Gill doesn't agree with that. He thinks the man was already dead, but I don't think so. I think Jameson Fawcett or Brown have got that one figured out pretty good. But at any rate, the, the main principle here is that our spiritual commitments to Jesus transcend our earthly social requirements. And I'll guarantee you that sooner or later there's going to be a conflict. You decide to follow Jesus and your family's going to be screaming at you. You can't do that. You can't be a missionary. You've got to take care of your aged mother, or you've got to take care of your wife, or you've got to do this and you've got to do that. It's a hard, hard thing. But if there's a conflict, you have to go with the Lord. This, by the way, this thing, let the dead bear the dead, was actually a common saying among Jews. They took the spiritually dead was those who had forsaken the law. Let the, those who have forsaken the law bear their own dead, and you leave them alone. But Jesus took it to his own purpose. He's saying, no, let those who are spiritually dead, who are not interested in spiritual things, let them take care of social obligations. But if you want to spread the kingdom, follow me and don't get involved in all that social stuff. These disciples, is another of his disciples, an unnamed disciple said this, let me go bury my father. When the question might arise, well, what kind of a disciple is that? It doesn't sound like he's very committed. Well, that's true. It's not one of the 12 disciples. It's one of those who loosely follow Jesus and profess to believe him. Now, this idea of a loose disciple is something we need to look at. John 6, verse 66, 666. John 6, verse 66 says this, From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So you see, Jesus had disciples who weren't very committed disciples. As soon as the going got tough, they turned around and left. All right, I'm back from that splice. 
of Matthew 8, 19 through 22, covering Luke 9, 57 through 62. Now, you might have noticed as I was going through Luke, I skipped a few verses, Luke 9, 51 through 56. Those verses, according to A.T. Robertson's Harmony, are a little bit out of time order. They describe Jesus privately going to Jerusalem through Samaria. There are no real parallel passages. There's one verse mentioned in John 7. Uh, so, I'm, so I'm going to discuss Luke 9:51 through 56 on its own right here. Luke 9:51 says this, When the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. Now, there are alleged parallel passages in John 7, 1 through 10, but I must say here that harmony is very controversial, according to Robertson, and I'm not going to get into all those discussions. Robertson says that the problem of harmonizing Luke 9, 51 through 18, 14, this is the Judean ministry in Luke, harmonizing that with John is the most perplexing question in harmonistic study. So we're not going to get into that. We're just going to assume this is Luke. This is uh, this passage in Luke tells us that Jesus is going down to Jerusalem. Now, this is not the journey that led to his crucifixion, not his last journey. It's the beginning of a period of ministry in Judea, according to the NIV Study Bible. The NIV Study Bible has Luke 9:51 to 13:2 as the Judean ministry, and we'll be taking that up in subsequent audios. Jameson Fawcett Brown says this verse here, 9.51, Luke 9.51, marks a very solemn period in our Lord's public ministry. So slightly is it touched here and in the corresponding passage, passage of Mark, Mark 10.1, that few readers probably note it as the Redeemer's farewell to Galilee, which, however, it was. See on the sublime statement of Luke, Luke 9.51, where we are here, which relates to the same transition stage in the progress of our Lord's work. Jesus, and so ends the quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Gill points out that Jesus never more went into Galilee. This is it. He's telling Galilee, his home area, goodbye. Robertson labels this as his quote-unquote private journey to Jerusalem through Samaria. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown disagrees with that. He says that Jesus now seems to court publicity instead of avoiding it. Difference of opinion there. Now, in this verse, it says that the days were coming to a close. This is Luke 9:51. When the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up. What does taken up mean? Well, the obvious reference is taken up to heaven after his crucifixion. However, John Gill denies that. Adam Clark denies that. Jameson Fawcett Brown affirms that. That's what it means. I think that's what it means. The problem, according to Gill and Clark, is that Jesus is a good way from this time. Gill estimates about six months until the crucifixion and even more, 40 more days till his ascension so uh, there's a problem I don't know I, the time is six months away is time for him to go down to Jerusalem that doesn't bother me in the least so I think it's still talking about being taken up into heaven Gil says it could be taken up into the higher country of Jerusalem well I don't know about that Clark says it sh the word should be translated as to retire or withdraw so the verse would read like this when the days were coming to a close for him to be Withdrawn. In other words, the time for him to be hiding in Jerusalem or hiding outside of Jerusalem is over, and now he's going to be public in his ministry. Well, that's very clever. I don't think that's what it means. I think it means when the time came, it was just getting ready for Jesus about to go up into heaven. It's getting close now. Luke 9, verse 52 through 53. He, Jesus, sent messengers ahead of him, and on the way they entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. 
But they, the Samaritans, did not welcome him, did not welcome Jesus, because he determined, because Jesus determined to journey to Jerusalem. Now, the Samaritans were particularly hostile to Jews on their way to festivals in Jerusalem, and I'm assuming they're going down here to a festival, I think it was the Passover that Jesus is heading down there for. And so Samaritans, according to the NIV study Bibles, would refuse overnight shelter to pilgrims going to Jerusalem, even though it was a three-day journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. So the Jews coming from Galilee going to Jerusalem would often travel down the east side of the Jordan River to avoid Samaria. However, there is an opinion to the contrary, a learned opinion from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, quote, The Galileans in going to the festivals at Jerusalem usually took the Samaritan route. Gil, uh, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown quote Josephus Antiquities uh, to prove that. And these Galileans yet seem to have met with no such inhospitality. But if they were asked to prepare quarters for the Messiah and the person of one whose face was as though he would go to Jerusalem, their national prejudice would be raised at so marked a slight upon their claims. In other words, what Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown are saying is that generally the Samaritans would give shelter to Galilean pilgrims, ordinary Galilean pilgrims, but not to one who was claiming to be the Messiah when they thought the Messiah was coming to Samaria. So that was just a little bit too much. We're not going to give shelter to the Messiah. Well, whichever way it is, the point is the Samaritans were acting like boorish snobs. They wouldn't take in these pilgrims. Now, the two messengers that were sent ahead of Jesus as they entered into Samaria to prepare Jesus's way were probably James and John, according to John Gill and Adam Clark, because they were the ones that tried to call down fire on Samaria later because of the inhospitality. So that does make sense. Luke 9, 54-55. When the disciples James and John saw this, saw the inhospitality of the Samaritans, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. Now, James and John were probably thinking about Elijah, according to the NIV Study Bible. 2 Kings 1.10 says this, Elijah responded to the captain of the fifty, If I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty men. I suspect they got struck by lightning. A lot of times in the Old Testament, fire is translate, translated for the word that can mean lightning. Bang! They're wiped out. Now James and John were known as the sons of thunder. That's right in up their alley to call down fire on somebody's head. Mark 3.17 says this, And to James the son of Zebedee, and to his brother John, he, Jesus, gave the name Bornairs, that is, sons of thunder. <laughs> so, now it's amazing that they had the faith to do this. They knew that they had miraculous power. They'd been doing miracles and such in their ministry. But still, that takes a lot of faith to say, God, bring down lightning on these Samaritans' head. Now, Jesus rebuked them. Why? Because it was a spirit of revenge that James and John were exhibiting. It had nothing to do with self-defense. The disciples were more concerned about their honor rather than the honor of God. Now, John here is really making some discipleship errors. He had just been rebuked for being too exclusive in Luke 9, verses 49 through 50, which we've already covered in this audio. John responded, Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. And Jesus responded, Don't stop him, Jesus told him, because whoever is not against you is for you. So John's being too exclusive there, and he's being revenge-minded here. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown mentioned that it is surprising that Peter was not involved in this because he was pretty hot-headed too, but he wasn't. Let's give him credit for that. Let's look at some textual variants here. 
James and John said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? The NIV study Bible margin has two variants. To consume them, comma, even as Elijah did, one textual variant adds. Another one says, to consume them. And he said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Well, it doesn't really matter. The idea is there. Jesus is rebuking them for acting in a way that's not consistent with their regenerated state. Luke 9:56, and they went to another village. So rather than destroy the village that they were in, they ignored that village and went to another way. Now I'm going to do an application here. This is a good principle for those who like to fight all the time. And there are people in the body of Christ, you know, the people, what do they call them, the apologetics people, the discernment ministries, they like to go what, root out error. And I agree that error should be rooted out, and a lot of these apologetic ministries do a good job. But a lot of them just like to fight all the time. Fight over stuff that ain't really, that's not really important. Now, sometimes you have to fight, but you don't always have to fight. And right here, there was no necessity to do anything to the Samaritan village. They could have just left and gone to another village, which is exactly what they did. Jesus actually illustrated his own precept, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, in Matthew 10, verse 23. When they persecute you in one town, escape to another. Don't call down fire on the town that persecutes you, just go somewhere else. For I assure you, you will not have covered the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. That's referring to Jesus coming in judgment in AD 70. Now, I, can think, I think of another example. Think about those homosexuals who go to a friend now, a, somebody who's running a cake shop, and she has friends with these homos, she's friends with these homosexuals, and she has done business with them before when they ask for cakes. But then they decide they want to get married to another, quote-unquote married, to another member of the same sex. The woman says, I'm sorry, I can't do that. That violates my conscience. Now, those homosexuals could have gone to another, another uh, bake shop and gotten the cake. There's plenty. And the same case with a woman who wouldn't sign a marriage license because it violated her conscience. Those homosexuals could have gotten another clerk to sign the marriage license, but no. They want revenge. They hate Christians, and they want to do them in. So they sue them, take them to court, ruin the business, make them pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in fines, and then go around talking about how tolerant they are. We're not supposed to act like that. We're not supposed to act like the LGBTQ fanatics, the gender Nazis. We're not supposed to act like that. We're supposed to try to reason with them, and if they won't reason with us, go somewhere else. Now, now admittedly, if they, if they back you up against the wall, you have to fight. I'm not a pacifist, but you should avoid the fight as long as you can. And, these, and here, the disciples didn't do that. They were looking for vengeance. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I am finished with this rather long audio. We have finished up with Luke 9, and we will start with Jesus' Judean ministry in the next audio in Luke 10. I hope you enjoyed this one. See you next time.